0: Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. Thank you for listening today. I'm Harriet Frew, AKA the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information, and soon to be invited guests to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. Now today I'm going to talk to you about one of my other favorite topics and this is all about being in two minds about change around disordered eating. Now it's so common that when people come into therapy that a part of them is like desperate to change but then a part of them also has many 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 fears about this. And often before we can start therapy, we need to do this kind of work to really root out this ambivalence and help people understand their eating disorder or disordered eating from a psychological perspective. So when I'm talking about ambivalence, I mean being about two minds about change. Okay, And this is so common not just with the disordered eating, but if you've been cereal dieting, crash dieting, kind of doing weird things with food for a long time. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who's not had some conflicts around change. Part of them desperately wanting to get rid of the eating problem or free from being obsessed with food. And part of them incredibly fearful about letting the eating problem go. So this can be very confusing. You can feel torn in half, pulled in opposing directions. A part of you might be absolutely fed up with it. It's preoccupying all your time, you're counting calories or steps or weighing or whatever. It might be leaving you exhausted as well. You're in bed early every night and limping through the day on low energy. It means you can't go out socially, you miss birthdays, you miss meals out, you miss celebratory events, you're quite isolated and your moods are often all over the place. High one minute with euphoria to crashing lows the next, leaving you desperate and hopeless and basically it's robbing you of a fulfilling life. But whilst all of this may be 100% true, there's another part of you that is extremely apprehensive about letting it go and you might feel very frustrated by this as it doesn't seem very logical and this can be for a multitude of reasons many of these not obvious at all to begin with and this is ultimately because the disordered eating is a coping strategy And this doesn't mean that it's a thought-out and planned strategy. It's more likely to be an unconscious reaction to stresses and things going on in your life. You never would have planned or intended to be using food or controlling your weight in the way you are now. It's just kind of happened. So today I'm going to talk about the three main barriers to change and recovery and how to go about addressing these so you can move beyond the illness towards health. So my number one coping strategy is the numbing and distracting from feelings. Now if you have disordered eating, it often, not always, goes hand in hand with being a sensitive person. So someone who naturally feels the feels intensely. You'll likely be sensitive to your environment, loud noises, intense smells, or certain people. And you're probably a real empath, good at caring for others and tuning into their needs. And you might be quite intuitive, So if childhood experiences or stressful events or difficult life stuff has gone on and for whatever reason you haven't been able to deal with your emotions in a healthy way and maybe this is because there wasn't the right support around or people were busy or maybe you just hid it really well from others, well if this happened issues with food can creep in as a coping mechanism and If you start to change your eating by restricting what you eat, cutting out a food group, counting calories, weighing food or following a brand new plan, then you're essentially having something to focus on in a really intense way. And you can't help but become more preoccupied with food when you're in a dieting phase, as your brain will demand glucose and make you think about food, and this is a physiological survival mechanism that you can't really override. So once you start focusing on food or weight or body image or how many steps you've taken your thoughts and feelings become very directed around these behaviors You're going to start caring much less about other things going on around you For example a friend not responding to a text or an argument with your mum It's going to matter significantly less as you're increasingly directing your energy and thoughts toward towards food and your body And it's very easy in our culture to project our negative thoughts and feelings onto our bodies, rather than feel the rejection, sadness, anxiety, guilt, or pain that may be lying underneath. And maybe at the time, when your disordered eating was triggered, there was no safe place or person to talk to or get support with your feelings. So understandably, at the time, it might have been a survival strategy to help you get through. Maybe food was the only solace and comfort of a very difficult time. Maybe focusing on counting calories blocked out the pain so you didn't have to feel it. And it's often not conscious. You might not even know how you feel beneath the eating problem because you become so preoccupied and focused with the thoughts and feelings generated around the symptoms. For example, you're feeling guilty for eating that extra biscuit or anxious for your weigh-in tomorrow morning. Your head is buzzing with disordered eating thoughts, so the underlying pain gets buried. So how to deal with this? How to even begin to get in touch with your deeper feelings? So beginning to access the underlying emotions can be a daunting and scary prospect. It might also be hard to see the wood for the trees, as the symptoms have become so entrenched and genuinely stressful. So it does help to get your symptoms a bit more under control at first. So this might include some weight restoration if you're underweight, um, or it might involve changing some of your other behaviours like reducing binge eating or purging, or starting to distance yourself from your relationship with the weighing scales. Now, it's important to be able to work on your symptoms at least a bit first, otherwise you're almost in a fog and you just can't see the wood for the trees, so once the fog begins to clear a little, you can begin to touch base with the underlying feelings and this can be quite painful work initially and is often done best within the safety of therapy. but having said that, it could also be done really talking to a really trusted friend um or someone who can really give you that space to be heard and who's going to be very accepting um but I would say certainly if you've got some quite difficult stuff to talk about the safety of therapy can often be the best place for that. Now in my own recovery from bulimia my core pain was absolutely about not feeling good enough deep down and feelings of deep unworthiness. It was feeling I was unacceptable and as I pleased others and there was a deep sense of shame about who I was as a person. I had internalised messages put onto me that were not mine to hold, but because I'd heard them again and again, I couldn't shake them off. They felt true to my core. And I coped by trying to be everything to everyone, being whoever the person needed me to be in the moment, and not even knowing that I was doing this really. And it was an underlying coping strategy to protect from the potential rejection. So all of that was much more of my core pain that was going on beneath. kind of more symptom-based stuff of body image and binging, purging, trying to control my weight Um, and obviously those symptoms in the moment and day-to-day were really um, causing me a lot of distress and I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about those but really it was about the deeper stuff that was the most helpful for me to get to because I, although I needed to work on the symptoms I needed to kind of work on that deeper stuff and begin to move beyond that and initially that was through feeling some of those feelings and expressing some of those feelings in a very safe place. So the eating disorder for me was a way to deal with conflicting feelings that I couldn't allow myself to feel in an open and honest or direct way. Restriction and control of food and weight felt good and pure and right Binging and purging was disgusting, wrong, bad and a way to express feelings of rage, upset, anger, guilt that I felt in relationships but felt no permission or acceptance to share. It was a survival mechanism when I was living at home but then I took this unhealthy coping strategy with me out to the real world where it was no longer helpful although it did feel right and normal. So much of recovery is about feeling these feelings that have been buried is about getting back in, back in touch with them, naming them, maybe feeling them for the first time if they've been blocked for a long time, and finding healthy ways of coping with your feelings, rather than using food or controlling your body shape as a way to try and block these feelings. So this leads me on to point two, and another way that disordered eating can temporarily help, is by offering a sense of purpose and achievement. Now, diet culture is powerful and relentless with its messages. It says that it's good to be thin, to control your weight and to shrink your body to smaller proportions. This is sadly celebrated, some kind of feat or achievement, a golden trophy of honour that sets you aside from others. Thin is wrongly idealised and objectified and put on the pedestal of worthiness. And this is so wrong. Because of course as well, it doesn't work deep down. Because even if you achieve a goal weight or a thinner body, anyone who has walked this road will tell you hand on heart that this hasn't given them the magical fix to self-esteem that they long so dearly for. Once you achieve the initial goal, the goalposts have moved again and nothing can ever feel good enough. But although this doesn't work as a lasting and soul-enriching strategy, it does offer fleeting glimmers of self-worth. In Western culture, weight loss tends to invite, wow, you've lost weight. It's a badge of honour. You're succeeding at something that very few people can actually do successfully. And if you're not feeling that great about yourself deep down, the initial compliments or attention can be absorbed rapidly, rapidly in the way that you'd gulp water when thirsty for hours in the desert. So people born as well with genetically smaller and thinner bodies, although they might still have eating and body image issues, they do have considerably less burden and pressure to bear from society. Because if you're born into a larger body, you're going to feel that pressure to lose weight even more. But often, realistically, you're going to be going against your body's natural happy place. So this is not to permit poor health or encourage people to become really overweight, but it's a genuine acknowledgement that our bodies are all different. And it's so important as Part of healing to accept kind of where your body is in its happy place. So, when people lose weight, interestingly, the attentions and comments often become unwanted quite quickly. So, initially, it can feel quite flattering, but very quickly, comments can make people feel very self conscious. And this is because no amount of weight loss ever feels good enough. And you become so preoccupied with negative thoughts about your weight and shape that you start to presume that other people are thinking these things too. So to change this, you need to move beyond valuing yourself so much for how you look around weight and shape. You need to get in touch with your deeper values and find ways of fulfilling these to generate more productive and sustainable self-worth. So to illustrate this, I'm going to talk about my fictional client, Abby. So Abby had always felt unattractive as a child and relentlessly compared herself to her siblings who she described as pretty and attractive. One of Abby's sisters was academic and another one was a dancer. Abby felt that she had nothing in comparison. Abby felt these messages had been constantly reinforced as she was growing up, with other people often commenting about her siblings in a positive manner. Abby started to feel fat and frumpy and worthless. She decided to go on a diet and initially she quickly lost weight. She felt amazing and a sense of power and control that she'd finally found something that she was good at. Abby became addicted to these feelings of accomplishment and wasn't going to give this up anytime soon. But soon she became caught in a relentless cycle of punishing dieting and relentless binge eating and purging. She was constantly chasing the initial drive to lose weight and the feelings of achievement this had brought. But the further she pursued this path, the more out of control and the greater sense of failure she felt. So in counselling, Abby began to talk about her early life and to talk about these deeper feelings. It was a painful process to talk about her feelings of unworthiness and hopelessness. But In time, Abby began to realise that there were things that she was very good at, particularly around arts and crafts and being very creative. Now these are qualities she just hadn't accepted or appreciated or valued in herself growing up. But Abby slowly began to accept her qualities and value her innate uniqueness. Maybe she wasn't like a supermodel or getting grade A's in maths and English, but she was really creative, quirky, someone who loved to read and draw. And she blossomed and started to acknowledge her own unique self-worth. The pursuit of thin as the primary way to feel good began to lose its appeal and other things opened up in her world. Now this brings me on to my third point related to ambivalence about letting go of disordered eating and this is all about beliefs, habit and identity. Now We know with disordered eating behaviours, it's much more helpful if you can turn them around quite quickly. Because the earlier you can get help, the better. Because as human beings, we're very habit-bound creatures, and we can quickly become quite entrenched in the way we do things. So on what initially might be a one-off diet or a one-off binge, it can quickly slip into becoming a repetitive pattern that we do again and again and again. And eventually something that we do regularly it becomes a habit and eventually an unconscious habit where we start to lose our emotional response to what we're doing and we just kind of do it on autopilot we also know that the starved brain starts to change and that it makes think our thinking much more rigid and this make things makes change much harder so when you're restricting your eating you will value routine rigidity and control much more spontaneity just goes out the window So if an eating disorder has been around for a while, it can start to become a part of you. It becomes kind of what you do and over time this can become part of your identity. You can become really scared of who you might be without the disordered eating. You can become terrified of what would fill this void. And this is not true of just eating disorders or disordered eating, this can be about dieting too. For some people, dieting almost becomes a lifestyle and a hobby and kind of what they do with their time. If your self-worth has become so linked to your ability to control eating or manage your weight, then letting go of this becomes risky. You might also start to identify with being the one who's weird with food or the one who's always dieting or eating clean or the one who has an eating problem. So this has kind of become the scaffolding that holds up your life. And dismantling this scaffolding might feel absolutely terrifying. So how to change this? So for me, I had always been a profound people pleaser. I was adept at moulding myself to be whatever others needed needed me to be. This smoothed life over and kept the peace in the moment, but while simultaneously completely destroying and confusing my own sense of self and who I was. I didn't know my likes and dislikes. I didn't know my opinions on anything. I didn't trust my internal voice at all because I would always look outside for the answers. So however well-intended others could be, they didn't really know what was the best for me. So I work with a lot of people at Cambridge University, students with eating disorders, who have ridden the academic path and have often been labelled as being ac- academically brilliant or successful from a young age. And they've often felt pressure to maintain this and life has become a lot about shoulds. And they've almost like lost themselves along the way. I work with other people as well who are pursuing the dreams of someone else. Maybe a parent or an early life figure had Particular things they put onto them. So they become stuck and lost their sense of self and become swallowed up by life. And it feels too scary to jump ship and take things in a more authentic direction. So dieting or managing food has become the focus or sense of purpose. So it's safer than risking to touch base with themselves. But the good news is that you can build an identity separate from food even if you've been locked in this for quite a long time but building an identity is a slow drip drip process however it's one that can be quite fun and exciting and you can approach it with curiosity and a sense of adventure so sometimes the clues can come from your early life what did you enjoy doing before you had issues with food? What kind of activities did you like? Who were you friends with? What did you like doing in the holidays? And I'm co- of course, I'm asking these questions here, assuming that you've been fortunate enough to have a childhood. And this isn't true for everyone, because if you've been a young carer or you've suffered abuse or neglect for your childhood, then you might not have these memories to draw on. So with building identity at starting small, the little baby decisions count for a lot to begin with. What's your favourite colour? What YouTube videos are you drawn to? What's your favourite subject to read about if you went into Waterstones? So you might have to try out lots of different activities to see if they are the right fit for you. And this isn't about success or failure, it's about exploration. You can also think about people you admire or who you are drawn to. Who inspires you and interests you? What are the qualities in this person? And this might give you a clue as to the qualities that you would like to develop more in yourself. So in summary, it's so normal to be in two minds about recovery from disordered eating. It's so normal to feel ambivalent. And this is because disordered eating has become a coping strategy. Not a logical, thought-out one, but often a kind of coping strategy that has formed unconsciously, but then is really quite hard to let go of. So the three main ways that I've talked about how this can get in the way is firstly, the coping strategy of numbing feelings. Secondly, it can offer a sense of achievement and a glimmer of self-worth when you're not feeling good about yourself in other areas. And thirdly, it can become part of your identity and kind of fill up that void when you don't really know who you are. But we know though that deep down, it doesn't really work as a way of coping. And actually, it ends up creating so many more problems along the way. So it's not worth holding on to, even though it can feel scary to let go. So, be brave, be bold, and dare to take the first step to move away from disordered eating. It might feel scary, but a more fulfilling and authentic life does await you. The risk is absolutely worth it. So, do let me know in the comments your own experiences of dealing with ambivalence and how you have moved beyond this. I would love to hear about any stories and ways that you have done this. And if you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for regular tips and insights into overcoming disordered eating, do sign up for weekly articles on my blog page at rethinkyourbody.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you soon. Bye for now.